0: Take your Bible turn to Genesis chapter 1. This morning we continue our study of the creation week. Last week we looked at the sixth day. There, were, there we saw the finishing of God's creating the living creatures and the culmination of his creation, i.e. man. We said we will see the three types of land animals. There we will see that God is in a small way, imaging himself in the creation of, the, of these animals. We will see that the creative act is a, c- a continuation of the creative act of day five in the creation of the flying creatures. This too will point us to the gradual working from lower to higher animal life forms. Then this will see, uh, we will see the culmination in the creation of man, the image of God. We will try to nail down the meaning of this statement by God. We will look at how we are to image God and what is the complete and incomplete image. Lastly, we will see how all this points to the, uh, points us to the Christ. How he is the root and stem of this creative act as risen Lord, the second Adam. From this we learned God created the trinity of the land creatures. The doxology of day five applies to these animals. God has not introduced death into his creation. God creates his image. How then are we the image? Man was created for dominion. The image of God is incomplete without a bride. And Christ is the true image of God. This morning, we will see that God gives a third doxology over his creatures. But there is something that he adds. This added thing is dominion. Though this aspect is not the be-all to end-all of mankind, it is a crucial aspect. God here places his representatives in his role of governor of the earth. He, we will see the huge responsibility this was, and that God did not make this decree without first showing Adam, our father, what this was going to involve. We also will see the food provision that God gives to man and the animals. We often think that things have always been the way they are. Yet, the fall and the deluge brought differences that were catastrophic on man. We need to eat flesh of the animals to live healthy and be productive. But, for the first 1600 years of our history, man only ate fruit and vegetables. This is also true of the animals. And this points to what we have said uh, a few weeks ago, and I think last week as well, there, is no, there was no death at this time. From this, we will learn it is by the blessing of God that we are fruitful. Man was blessed to subdue the earth. This foreshadows the true man's fruitfulness. The dominion mandate pictures Christ's dominion. Where Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. God provides all that we need to not have to subdue, subdue through violence. Everything that God made was good. You will stand to honor the reading of God's Word this morning and remain standing as we ask God the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of His Word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. The Word of the Lord reads, God. Then God bless them, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, And to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were six days. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Blessed and holy God, we thank you, Father, for this your word. God that not only instructs us on how we should live, But, God, how things were originally before sin entered the world. God, you have created us thus, and we ask, Lord, that you will return us to that. That one day we will enjoy the eternal blessings of that which you gave us in the garden. Through our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that you will instruct us with this word. And that, God, it will cause us both to rejoice and live more faithfully and fervently to you. We ask God these things, in your blessed and most holy Son, Jesus Christ, wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. It is by the blessing of God that we are fruitful. Verse 28a, God produces, uh, pronounces the third doxological blessing upon his creatures. The first were on the fish and the birds, told them to be fruitful and multiply. The second was on the land creatures. As well, he told them to be fruitful and multiply, and now he blesses his image bearers. The blessing is twofold. The first part is the blessing of reproduction. We He tells them to be fruitful, leading to the question concerning this terminology, why does God use the word fruitful to describe being productive uh, in reproduction, right, producing after their own kind? Why does he use this terminology? Why does God say fruitful? Well, this shows us that the concept of the metaphor and the simile were first employed by God. God is here teaching us how we are to use language, and it is also showing us how we are to read the scriptures. We know that God is not telling women to produce oranges from their wounds. Grapes aren't going to come forth from you, ladies. That's not what he means. He means be fruitful, have children. Be fruitful, men. Bear children with your wife. And so this rich picture uh, that is drawn in the human mind with this turn of phrase helps us to understand what God meant. He wanted man to produce seed and that seed to produce the same. Malachi 2.15 reads, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed of your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Looking at this, as we did last week, we see why God desires to have his two image bearers be one. To desire he desired godly offspring. Parents, that's your job. To produce godly offspring. We are to be fruitful, but within bounds. God doesn't say just do whatever you have to to be fruitful. Right? We're not pragmatic. So man, that means if your wife is barren and cannot have children, that's God's doings. And you're to rejoice in it. You're to rejoice in her and not be treacherous to your wife. We are only to have legitimate children from covenant homes. And this is here what is meant by fruitful. This is how mankind was to fill the earth. He was to produce a godly progeny and not just produce. Right? So you could say that you were fruitful if you go down here to end of the road to these apple trees that nobody ever really harvests and you start taking apples in October. And you start making pies with them. But they're illegitimate because you stole the apples. They're not yours. No matter if they lay, lay fallow, no matter if nobody picks them, they're not your apples. Likewise, if you take a woman who is not your wife and you have children by her, you're not being fruitful, you're being disobedient. See the difference? There's bounds, there is freedom in these bounds. We must understand there is no question that the Owen boys are the Owen boys. They belong to Robert and Heather. They're, they're children. And if they wish to have more children, they can. If they don't, they don't have to. But they are being fruitful with these children. Because they're beating them into submission of Christ. No, they're, they're raising them up in the, loving and, the love and admonition of the Lord. They're raising them to be obedient to Christ. That is what it means to be fruitful. And we have to understand that we cannot allow the world to dis- to describe for us what it means to be fruitful. Or whether or not it is good to be fruitful. We're going to win. They don't want to have kids. We're going to win because they're lying about the creation. They're lying about children. We have to understand that we have the upper hand because God not only has commanded us to be fruitful, but he has commanded us to bring forth godly seed, and he's given us all the means to do so. He has given us all the means to do so. The seed that is produced is a blessing. It is God who enables man to produce, and he makes who he wishes to be fruitful. And we all should rejoice in that fruitfulness. We should never say stupid things like, well, you know what causes that, don't you? Please don't sound like a pagan when you talk to others about the blessings God is giving them. Please don't sound like a pagan because that's how a pagan thinks. Why? Because the father looks at his son in a pagan world and sees a competitor. Not a blessing. Not someone to stand in the gates with him. We we do not produce children, God does it through us. Man was blessed to subdue the earth, verse 28b. Now, before we go too far, we must remove the militant connotations that this statement might bring to our mind because we misuse the word dominion all the time. Uh, when when, When I would first speak to Tracy Sullins about this concept, he would put me off and try to make me shut up but in a very loud voice, and if you know Tracy, that's not a usual thing. In a very loud voice, he would say, get your guns. We're going to Washington. You remember that, Robert? Annie. Huh? Annie. Annie. Annie, get your guns. Annie, get your guns. That's right. He would, he would just, he would try to put me off. Because the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about dominion is dominating, And that's not what this means. Right? We, we, we think of forced compliance when we think about this. This is why subjugation of wife to husband is so distasteful to so many today. So many ungodly women will hate on the patriarchy because they believe that our wives are slaves. They're forced to just do what the husband wants them to do. I'd invite those women to spend about two hours in my home and their whole view of that would change really quickly. That's not what is meant here. They cannot get the idea of being forced and controlled by someone stronger. They can't get that out of their mind. But this is not what is being conveyed here. And we know this because at the time of the blessing of this this benediction... There was no other humans to subjugate. There was nobody else. There's a man and a woman, and he was talking to them. We we so often in patriarchal circles will make the mistake of thinking God's talking to Adam and Eve, then has to just follow along and help him. Can I get you a screwdriver? Do you need a shovel? What do you want for dinner? No. God says, family, in my image, go and bring creation into subjection. Now, the man's still in this. It is his responsibility. But women, it is your job as well to make sure that dominion is taking place. Adam and Eve were all there was. So there was no one else to subjugate. There was no one else to bring into submission to them. Not to mention, God makes clear what he is speaking of in the next section. He is speaking of the animals and the land that the animals lived on. This is what man was to have dominion over. So then what is dominion? We again think of sinful human actions such as domination. But this is not what is meant here. Man had no person to dominate. Rather, it has the idea of control, authority, or responsibility. Psalm 8, 4-6 through 6 reads, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Then, man had the authority to do with the animals and land as was needed to bring them under subjection. But, as with other areas of authority, this was not subjection to man, but to God. And here is what is missed. The president does not have a right to dominate the common man except to restrain the wicked and protect the life of those who live in his authority. The same is true of the husband. He only has authority to structure his home and rule his house whole according to God's law. Right? So, I'll give you a very extreme example that's never going to happen. Again, because I like breathing. But if I came in tomorrow from work and told my wife... You know, we need more economic stability, and I'd like to have some children, so I'm going to bring a 24-year-old girl into the house, and we're going to get married, and we're all just kind of live together. My wife says God's Word says that's sin, and you're not going to do that. And if you try, I'm going to call the elders, and if they don't do anything, I'll probably kill you. We have to understand... That there are bounds and limits. I don't get to make up rules as I wish. I don't get to dominate my home as I see fit. My dominion is granted to me by the Lord, and I can only rule within those bounds. Again, bounds are good. That's why we're told not to move the ancient boundaries. Right? So... Um, we must understand that that is what we see here. So the fruitfulness we saw in the last section is, uh, points to or foreshadows the true man's fruitfulness. So in our first point, we saw that the man made of the soil was to copy the fruit trees uh, planted in the soil. We were to produce seed, and they were to be in a context, the context of marriage, in a covenant marriage. Likewise, our archetype Jesus is to produce seed. So this blessing is one of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that remakes us through the new birth. This is the production. Of, I mean, the, yeah, the production of the second Adam. This is what was promised to Christ. Revelation seven nine and ten says, "After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number." of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here we see a glimpse of the fruitfulness of the second Adam. There's so many redeemed standing with him before the throne no one could count them. Give you the right the picture. You go to an angel at the end of the end of the history, and you say, "How many are the redeemed?" He's "I don't know. We can't count them all. There's not a number high enough to represent all of them." By the way, if you're all millennial, that just kind of blows your "just a few of us are getting saved" idea. Just really out of the water, because that's not the case. That's absolutely not the case. So many redeemed that no one could count them. There's coming a day of such gospel prosperity that the sower will be right behind the harvester. Amos 9.13 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. This shows that there will be such fertility of the gospel that the seed cannot be planted fast enough cannot be planted fast enough the plant will be going hurry and get the harvest in we've got to get more seed in the ground get out of the way we got work to do we should pray for the return of such gospel prosperity we saw it in the first century so all these naysayers who say these the gospel prosperity can never come back again. It can never come back again. Well, we were in a lot worse situation in Rome during the first century. I mean, they ain't they started catching us on fire in America yet, have they? No. We've not faced any hardship. Now, they are around the world. But here... We got it easy. The dominion mandate pictures Christ's dominion. Man is told not only to be fruitful, but to have dominion and and subdue. This is to reign in and make useful. God showed Adam how to do this by planting a garden before his eyes. So in chapter 2, we're going to see that God created Adam, and then he planted the garden And then he placed the man in the garden. So right before Adam's eyes, God planted the garden. Now, I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if things were just happening or if, you know, God in the image of Christ was plowing and tilling and pulling up and straightening up or what what, what was going on. But what we do know is everything Adam needed to learn to, to keep and till the garden, which he was commissioned to do, was shown him in the planting of the garden, right? Likewise, Christ planted the garden, the church, during his ministry. He ministered and made disciples. Now I want you to get this picture. There's a motif that goes throughout the Gospels. There is gospel uh, garden themes constantly. Christ was constantly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was constantly with his people and he constantly talked about the church in agricultural ways. He would say, I am the vine you are the branches, right? And he would tell them every fruitful branch that is not producing fruit, or unfruitful branch that is not producing fruit will be cut off and cast into the fire. So we, we see here what Jesus is doing is planting a garden. Then we see after his resurrection he is seen in a garden by Mary Magdalene as a gardener. She thought he was a gardener. What was he doing? He was tending his garden. Us. And he has shown us exactly how we are to expand this garden that he planted in Israel in the first century. This garden church was to be made to subdue the nations. Psalm 2. We know that this was the aim. If you read Psalm 2, I've read it a million times, you read it for yourself, that's exactly what it says is going to happen. And this is what Christ tells the apostles before his ascension in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There he showed them what it looks like to be a garden. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You notice he tells them to make what they were. You're my disciples. Go and make disciples. Go and make more disciples. And this is what it means to make disciples. Teach them all that I've commanded you. This means that this garden Christ planted in Israel was to go to all the world. Mark 16, 15 reads, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And we are told that the dominion of Psalm 8, that we read just a minute ago, uh, is fulfilled through Christ. Hebrews 2, 8b-9. through Now remember, In the beginning of verse 8, he actually, the writer of Hebrews actually quotes uh, Psalm 8. And then this is his conclusion. He says, "For, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Now here's the connection. Everything's been placed under subjection to man. But well, we don't see that right now. But what we do see is Jesus. What's the conclusion? Everything's being put under his feet. Right? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. To do what? Bring everything into subjection under his feet. That's the conclusion that we're supposed to get from the exposition of, Of that text by the inspired writer of Hebrews. All things are being put under Christ's feet. And this will bring uh, this to perfection uh, one day. This will be brought to perfection one day. Where Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. So Adam, as we said, was commissioned to fill the earth and subdue it. This means having offspring and make the earth like the garden. We will see when we get to chapter 2 that in one way this incorporated not just cultivation of plants but also worship. Adam at his first worship service failed and turned the first church over to Satan. Right? Very first Lord's Day. He says, you know what? I'm supposed to be the pastor here but I'm going to let Satan talk. Oh, he's going to leave the church. Christ has been given the same goal, right? This did not make God lower his sights with the second Adam. So, so this, is, this is what we're told. This is what the church thinks. You ready? God had this high ideal of what his creation was going to look like. And he commanded Adam and Eve to go and make it look that way by having children and teaching them how to do things and Adam failed and gave the world over to Satan so instead he's just gonna save as many as he can which ain't many and then one day he's gonna come and rescue us out and just give the creation to the end does that sound victorious to you at all do, does that sound like God is staying on track with what his goals were no it, if you had a young man and he said, you know what, I'm going to go be a physicist. And then he realizes, you know, I'm not really, I really don't like math that much and it's a big part of being a physicist, so I'm going to go dig ditches. No. Get better at math. Right? Do the work that is required. We're going to have this low ideal of what God is doing in the world And we wouldn't, we wouldn't put up with that with, us, with our sons. Would we? No. We, 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 we would never do that. We have already seen that Christ was going to be fruitful. Now we see to what extent he was going to subdue. Let's just look at a few scriptures. Romans 4.13 says... For the promise that he would be the heir of the world, that is Abraham, um, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham was the heir of the world. Romans eleven fifteen. 15. For if their uh, being cast away, the Jews, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now here Paul says the Jews rejected Christ and they've been cast off of the covenant. They're no longer apart. And if that action is the reconciling of the world, what will their coming back into that covenant be but life from the dead? So the conclusion is, the gospel in the first century was God reconciling the world. And it continues to this day. 1 John 2.2 And he himself is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. 1 John 4:14. 4, and he and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as savior of the world. Revelation 11:15. Then the seven angels sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, quote, "The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ." And he shall reign forever and ever. Now, in all this, we must not say more than these scriptures say. Can't. We can't add our own little taste to it. But we cannot say less than they say. And what do they say? They say that Christ is the Savior of the world. And our Armenian brothers say, look, see, it's not just the elect. It's the whole world. And us post-millennial Calvinists go, that's right. And we like it that way. We're glad. He is the Savior of the whole world. Christ is not just the Savior of the elect. He is that. But the whole world. This does not go against limited atonement. Every Orthodox Christian in some way limits atonement. I say Orthodox because if you don't limit the atonement to at least those who believe, then you're not orthodox, you're a Unitarian. Everybody gets saved. Well, then I can lay in bed on Sunday morning, and none of this matters. Because I'm going to get in anyway. Right? And I'm an American, so that means I'm going to take the easiest path possible. Right? We must not limit the extent of the the atonement. Christ has brought reconciliation and given that ministry to his bride. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What we have to understand in these texts, the world does not mean the elect. There's no way you can fit cosmos, into that understanding from the Greek. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but it means the whole world, at the very least, the earth. Now, what we have to understand is, then, that Christ is reconciling the world to himself, and only those who excommunicate themselves through the rejection of that sacrifice are excluded. So when your friend says, Well, it says the whole world, you say, I believe that. You should believe that. I mean, it says it several places. And so we must understand that his extent the extent of his dominion will be the whole world. It will be all the world. And one day it will be every human in the world. God provides all that we need to not have to subdue. Through violence, verses 29 through 30. We are told that the fruits and the vegetables are given to man for food. Later in chapter 9, we will see that God had not at that time given man permission to eat meat. This means that man was so constituted, at least before the flood, to gain all his sustenance through the consumption of these two sources of food. The same could be said, at least. Of the land creatures, the sea creatures likely did not eat each other either. God chose not to tell us either way, but I think we should assume this since death is a consequence of sin, as we said last week. We take away from this that we do not have to think of Adam subdu- subduing the world through violence. God didn't say subdue the world and Adam start forging a sword. Right? Right? In fact, gospel blessedness and the fruit of the gospel actually produces the very opposite of that. There's two times in the prophets that we are promised after the coming of Christ that men will actually beat their swords into plowshares, right? And their spears into pruning hooks. Implements of agriculture to produce food rather than to take life. So, um, nor was, was violence the means to bringing animals into subjection. Um, and so, we see this being pictured in the promised blessing of the new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah eleven nine says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Now, we have to realize didn't want to read that whole passage to you because it's already kind of a long sermon. But what I want you to remember is he's speaking of here the lion and the lamb laying together for warmth and babies in the backyard playing with the cobras. And we're like, I don't like that. This ain't going to happen. I want to believe that though this could be symbolic, it doesn't seem to be here. It says that they will eat grass like cattle. Well, is that not what's pictured here in this, in this chapter that they were originally doing? Now, if we sing every Christmas, Far as the curse is found... Well, do we not believe that the reason that the animals eat each other is because they're under the curse as well? Well, now, which do we believe, Christian? I mean, I can't wait. I I used to didn't believe there'd be animals in heaven. I hope there is. Because if this is a heavenly vision, right, and not an earthly one like I take it to be, then one day I'll get to kissy face the lion. Uh, man, I'm telling you, you see that kid dressed up as a tiger or whatever in the Disney commercial. And she wants that tiger and that tiger wants her. And I told my wife, I said, I'd love to just grab that thing by the face and just kiss it. And she said, he'd eat you. <laughs> and right now he would. But I mean, don't you know, I mean, how great that would be to be able to fully enjoy without fear of God's creation. Amen. We're going we're gonna to go to the plains of Africa. Why? because we're going to sleep with a lion. But you think about your great, great grandkids. We go swimming with dolphins. We can. I don't. But we can. They're going to maybe play with cobras. It's just, it's amazing what we see that God promises through the gospel. We then can expect that this will be the means to reach that glorious day. Christ's dominion. As we are told, the kingdom is not advanced by the wrath of men. James 1.20 But the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, it's taken the church years to discover this. Here James just told them that God brought them forth by His will. And he gives the opposite of that and says, Look, the opposite of being brought forth by the will of God is to try to produce the kingdom and righteousness Through the wrath of men. We should get angry at unrighteousness. We have to remember we're just as unrighteous as the person we'd strike down. We're just as wicked as them. And we're not for the grace of God. We would partake with them in that wickedness. Not only doing the same. But rejoicing in it with them. Everything that God made was good. Verse 31. God here at the end of of his creating evaluated all that he had made as had been the uh, as has been at the end of each creative section god declared it good but here we are told that all that was made was declared very good we could point out then that once again it seems unlikely that the tooth and nail nature of the animals would be present here it makes the long day view, hard to believe, now impossible, to believe that God would declare it very good while animals are slaughtering each other. What we see from this is that we, being made it, should evaluate everything. We are given everything to evaluate. So, so, this false understanding that the church is to be in her little building and stay in her little sphere of influence and not speak to politics or to or to sexual deviance or, or to culture or to any of those other things, we're, we're not allowed to say anything about those things is false. And you go, Well, Michael, well, you're you're kind of just pulling that out of this text just willy nilly. I mean, he evaluated, it doesn't mean we gotta evaluate. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16 read, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now notice here that we are not as God. As in our judging, we are to use the mind of Christ. So so we're not to come to a situation and say Michael thinks that this is the best thing for government to do. Michael does not have any authority to say such a thing. But what Michael does have the, the authority to say is thus says the Lord. About politics, about taxation, about abortion, about the death penalty, about murder, roads. The list goes on. This means that we are to judge things according to the word of God. And this leaves us in a position not to be judged. We can't be judged if we're using the mind of Christ and we're judging and evaluating all things through that lens. Well, I think Christ says, well, you can't judge me. Well, you're judging me, and the Bible says you can't do that, so stop. Right, mean, Right? It is is the simplest thing to do. God says not to judge. Well, well, you're judging me. You're saying that I can't judge you, and that's a judgment. So stop judging me. We must think God's thoughts after Him, and when we do, when we do, we are free of judgment. You don't want to be judged? according to God's Word. Evaluate things and understand them according to God's Word. In doing this, we take on the true image of God. We begin to be more like the image of we were originally created in. May God strengthen us as we seek His kingdom and righteousness on the earth, judging and evaluating all things which belong to us through Him. May we seek His fruitfulness for His glory as the Father puts all things under His feet. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed and most holy God, we thank You, Father, for the blessings of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the ways, God, that He has given us uh, this world which he created. Um, and we pray, God, that this week that we will go forth to conquer through him and by his power. We pray, God, that you will do these things for your glory and for your name'sake.